Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 71, Forever the Pain. Okay, if it's been a while uh, since you listened to the first half of my debate with Hiram Diaz, uh, let me catch you up with where we left off. Uh, The debate proposition, it was um, the punishment of the damned will actually be torment forever and ever. Hiram Diaz from Involuted Speculations and contributor at Grassroots Apologetics affirms the debate proposition and I denied it. Um, In the first part of the debate uh, contained our opening statements, our rebuttals, and the first round of cross-examination. In today's episode, you'll listen to the second half of the debate, which was the second round of cross-examinations, the listener Q&A portion of the debate, as well as our closing statements. So um, I hope that you've enjoyed it so far. If you haven't listened to that, then don't listen to this episode. Turn it off and go back and listen to that previous episode first. And uh, I hope that you enjoy the rest of the debate. Okay, thank you. And uh, Chris, you now have 10 minutes to cross-examine Hiram. Yeah, just hold on one second. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, go ahead and start the time. This is going to be a tough. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly the direction that I want to go. Um, but... Uh, again, I'll ask again, in, in the course of this cross-examination, have you um, thought of any examples where Old Testament language, uh, you know, going back to your issue of progressive revelation, where the revelation of the Old Testament is expanded upon in the New when it comes to eschatological final judgment? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, and you maintain that death, Hades, and the city uh, will be no more? Okay. So, um, on what basis, if, if, oh, actually, you know what, let, let me, um, uh, continue discussing, uh, revelation and torment. And, and what I want to talk about is, um, the, the beast. Um, the beast is described as having ten hordes and seven heads. Uh, the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear. I mean, all this language is very similar to, um, Daniel. Um, and in both cases, I think it's, I think that the beast is representative of an institution, a kingdom. Do you agree, or do you think that the beast is, in fact, an actual person? I agree with you. Okay. What happened in... Can, can you tell me what happened in Daniel 7 uh, with regard to um, the kingdom that the beast represented? I can't off the top of my head, no. Okay. The verse actually says, His dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Uh, and uh, the beast is um, destroyed in, in Daniel 7. What do you think happens to the beast of Revelation, though, the, the thing that the beast represents? Um, the beast, the personal symbol, is said to be tormented forever and ever. What happens to the institution that he represents? I I think it's kind of 
uh, I think that's a way of sidestepping what's really there because institutions are composed of individuals. They're composed uh-huh. of people. So I, I, I think so you, so you you're do not th- getting around it. Yeah. Well, I'm not trying to sidestep anything. I'm, I'm actually quite prepared for that. So um, on, on what basis do you suggest that the institution here that is symbolized by the beast includes uh, individuals rather than the institution itself? I mean, is that just an assumption that you're making? No, it's not just an assumption. Um, federal headship throughout Scripture. I mean, I can't point you specifically to Revelation. I, I wasn't sure where you were going to go in the debate. So, okay. Um, um, I, mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, so, the do you think that individuals who comprise the institution symbolized by the beast, human beings, um, are going to enter into the eternal torment of Gehenna um, at least a thousand years before they are judged in the final judgment? I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, when, according to Revelation uh, 19 and 20, when is it, with regard to the millennium, is the final judgment? Is it before or after the millennium? I believe it's afterward, if I remember correctly. Okay. When, with, regard, with regards to the millennium, is the beast thrown into the lake of fire to begin his eternal torment? I'd have to look that up. Okay. Would you like to look up Revelation uh, 19? Yeah, let me see. It's at the very end, or just about at the very end. It's um, beginning in verse uh, 20. I mean, so you acknowledge that in this verse, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire to begin their torment? Um, Yeah. Okay. Uh, Revelation 20... um, talks about in verse um, in, uh, immediately begins by saying that the, that Satan then is thrown into the pit for a thousand years and he says that during those thousand years the people that had not worshipped the beast or its image or received its mark on, the, on their forehead, uh, foreheads and hands came to life and reigned with Christ so again when were the beast and false prophet with regards to the millennium thrown into the uh, lake of fire I'm not sure I, I haven't spent much time in Revelation okay in preparation for the debate so Okay. Well, I'll, I'll just let the reader decide by reading the text, and I think it's pretty clear, and I think about every single traditionalist interpreter that has written on this has acknowledged that the beast and false prophet are uh, thrown into the lake of fire beforehand. In fact, I'll quote some uh, traditionalists really quick. John Wesley says that the beast and false prophet plunge at once into the extremest degree of torment without being reserved in chains of darkness till the judgment of the great day. Uh, David Guzik David says the beast and the false prophet receive special treatment. They are cast alive into the lake of fire before the great white throne of judgment holds court. So I just want the listener to, to see what the implications of uh, your view are. Um, they are that uh, human beings are thrown into the lake of fire to begin their eternal torment without facing the judgment. Um, so now I want to uh, look at some other issues. Let's see. Um, let's, let's talk about, let me ask you, what do you think death uh, and destroy mean? I think, um, like I said, those words are polysemous in nature. They have multiple connotations. Eschatologically meanings. speaking, what do they mean? Eschatologically speaking, I believe it's... <clears throat> excuse me. I believe, in generally speaking, I believe that it's complete ruination and um, the absence of God's blessing upon an individual. Not the cessation of existence, but the continuation of their existence in a state of accursedness or a ruination, condemnation. I actually never said anything about cessation of existence, but um, but can you give me any uh, substantiation for the view that the death of the um, 
eschatological second death is ruination in a sense in which people continue to be conscious for eternity? Um, a specific verse? No. Okay. Okay, but... You want me to, to explain? I'll tell you what. Let, let, let's okay. let's do this. In, okay. in, in the four minutes that we've got left, I, I mean, I, I'm struggling um, to try to find any passage um, that, in any way, shape, or form, su- supports your view. Can you point me to a uh, passage um, and any cross cross references, if you want, that you think is the best uh, support for your view? I understand that your case is cumulative. Uh, mm-hmm. So is mine. Um, but what is the best passage that supports I believe, I believe the best passage is in Matthew 25. Um, excuse me. And I, I believe it's okay. 41 to the end of the chapter. Yeah. And, and, and would you say that specifically you're talking about verse 46 is eternal punishment? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, can you tell me uh, what is meant in Hebrews 5, 9? Look it up. It's uh, the uh, eternal salvation. Do you do you think that um, Christ is going to be eternally saving the redeemed? No, okay. I don't believe that. Okay, how about? Um, uh, hold on, let me find my notes on this passage. One moment, I apologize. Mm-hmm. How about Hebrews nine twelve? Eternal redemption. Do you think that Christ is forever obtaining eternal, forever redeeming the elect? No, I don't believe that. Okay. So how do you understand eternal salvation and eternal redemption? I mean, would you agree that redemption and salvation are both the noun forms of uh, verbs? Mm Mm-hmm. I would. Um, So in what sense is the verb redeem eternal or the verb save eternal? The effects of it are eternal. Ah, okay. So, um, in why, why should the, uh, result of the verb punish not also be, uh, what are, what is in duration eternal rather than the punishing process? Well, I, I don't argue that. I believe that that's what, that's what it means in Matthew 25. Okay. But I, I believe that the punishment is not suffering until the individual is passes out of existence. Well, I don't either. I don't think that the punishment is suffering until they pass out of existence either. But clearly then, Matthew 25, 46 isn't the best verse. So can you show me where you think that there's a verse that defines the punishment of sin as uh, suffering rather than as death? Well, when I, when I spoke about, um, excuse me, the demons approaching Christ and the Gadarenes, and equating torment and destruction, I, I don't see a way around that. Okay, what what so. evidence do you have that the torment they're referring to is the torment of eternal fire? Um, specifically, I believe it's in Luke 12 where the Lord says, you know, the disciples come back to him and he says, "I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning." Is there a torment mentioned there? No. Okay. So, uh, so again, in in Mark five eight, Luke eight twenty nine, Mark one, Luke mm-hmm. four, any of those passages where the where the angels say, "Have you come to torment me before the time?" Can you give mm-hmm. me any evidence that what they're referring to is the torment in the eternal fire? I, I guess not. Can can you give me? No, no, it, not I guess not. I was trying to I was trying to make the point earlier. Um, the point of me saying that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning is that the eschatological age has begun. And so when he, when they speak about the time, I believe that that has reference to the day 
day, the day okay. of judgment that you see repeatedly throughout the New Testament. Okay. Well, I've only got mm-hmm. 20 seconds, so I'll just point out that I, I think that Satan's being um, cast out like lightning, whatever, probably best refers to his time in the abyss, which isn't the eternal fire at all. So, in fact, that's what I argued in my rebuttal. Um, but I guess I'm pretty much out of time, so I'll hand the microphone over to you. Okay. Okay, thank you, Chris. Uh, Hiram, you now have 10 minutes to cross-examine Chris. Okay. Um, let's see. Could you describe to me how the false teachers of Jude are twice dead? Can you give me a specific uh, verse, please? Sure. Give me one second. So oh, oh, verse uh, 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice mm-hmm. dead, uprooted. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I- I'm not exactly sure. Um, mm-hmm. What I do know is that the passage is talking about their future, not their present. After all, he does say these people. Uh, um, uh, hold on a second. Let me find what I was going to look for. Uh, no, that's, that's a good, I think that's a good question, and I would have to do more, uh, more, uh, research. However, w- what I do want to say is mm-hmm. that, um, he's talking about people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, um, and who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny, present tense, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that, that you can say that the entirety of the people in view here have already died. And, and to be honest, I just don't know how to answer your question about twice dead. I, I need to look into that more. Okay. Well, I'm asking because of, because of the way that conditionalism defines those terms. Uh, it, it represents an absurdity to me. It, and scripture becomes incomprehensible, like I said earlier. And that's why I asked you to define it for me. I mean, Jude is speaking about, um, excuse me, the present tense of what these people are doing. However, how do you explain the fact that he says present tense, they are? Twice dead. Yeah, well, I've already acknowledged that repeatedly um, New Testament and Old Testament authors refer to people in the present tense as being dead. Um, Your assumption that you're Mm -hmm. you're reading into the text, and and it may be there, I shouldn't, I don't mean to accuse you of eisegesis, but your assumption is uh, that the sense in which they mean that they're dead presently is in the sense that that they are literally dead right now. Uh, My assumption, based on the numerous passages that I've pointed to in my opening argument and in my rebuttal and and in our cross-examination, is that uh, the sense in which people are spoken of as dead in the present tense is in the sense that they are as good as dead. They're on their way to death. Um, yeah, I don't think that either of our assumptions is going to be tautological. I think that we're going to have to interpret them in light of the rest of Scripture. Okay. In Luke 13, 1 through 5, Christ tells us here is that unless they repent, they will, quote-unquote, likewise perish. Okay. Now, in light of your interpretation of Jude who uses similar language, and I'm sure it's not identical, um, but it's it's similar language of judgment and analogy that's being drawn. Um, excuse me. What does Christ mean? Yeah, well, I think there's at least two possibilities. One is that there are some major similarities between the first death and the second death, the first perishing, if you will, and the second perishing. Uh, you know, Jesus himself made that kind of clear in Matthew 10:28, where uh, the body will perish in both the first and second death, but in the second death, the soul will perish as well. The other alternative, and I think that this is a plausible one, is that um, he's talking about the the then looming destruction of Jerusalem, um, which happened, in which um, hundreds upon thousands, if not millions of Jews were uh, destroyed 
destroyed when Jerusalem was sacked by the armies, and uh, Christians fled um, when the armies of Rome uh, left Jerusalem briefly. They fled into the wilderness and survived. So uh, I take it quite literally. I think that unless they repent, they would likewise perish, likewise to those who were killed by the Tower of Siloam. Okay. But um, see, the problem is that I'm having that that use that you just had of likewise which would be which would mean that there's an analogy between one and the other it differs somewhat from the way that you you speak about Jude so is it um, let me see how to word this when you read Jude and Jude says he he makes the analogy between Sodom and Gomorrah and sinners in the future well he doesn't so, use an analogy but go ahead okay so explain to me what what does he do well, he uses a word, digma, uh, which appears only here in the entire Bible, and that's including the Septuagint. It's a word that literally means something shown. Um, uh, in Antidosis, Isocrates describes producing a sample of each kind of fruit. And, um, you know, I don't think that if asked to produce a berry, you're going to produce an apple because it's kind of like a berry. I mean, this isn't an analogy. He's saying that Sodom and Gomorrah were a specimen of the destruction which awaits the wicked. Now, like I said, there are some differences between the first and second death. The second death involves the death of the soul as well as the body. Uh, but nevertheless, they're both a death. Um, and there are some similarities that uh, suggest to me that, indeed, Sodom and Gomorrah was a specimen, particularly in the fact that it seems that he not only has in view the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the cities themselves, which were, in fact, destroyed, leveled to remains. Okay. How much time do we have left? Four, five minutes. Five minutes? Okay. So on, on what basis do you... I found it interesting that you interpreted Matthew 5, 21 through 26 as, as having to do with this life when, in context, Christ is not... He's speaking specifically about judgment before God. I mean, you consider what he talks about afterward, which is adultery, and the other things that he talks about... Um, what what exegetical warrant is there for believing that Matthew five twenty one through twenty six has to do with this this time? Now? Yeah, no, that's a good question, and I'll answer that in just a moment. But um, but mm -hmm. I, what I will say is that even if I'm wrong about the exegesis here, um, I think that what he's using is is a parable, and in fact he uses a uh, a parable um, elsewhere about the the um, the uh, the unmerciful servant who will. Um, uh, go into prison uh, until he pays off his last debt, which, as I said, neither of us take literally, so I don't think that we have any reason to take this literally if it's eschatologically speaking. Now, why do I think at this point, having not done much research into these two passages, that he's talking about an earthly imprisonment? Well, look what he says. He says, let your, uh, uh, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser, lest your accuser Hand you over mm -hmm. to the judge. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that people who accuse me are going to hand me over, uh, hand me over to, um, uh, God. I think they're handing me over to, to the court of law, which is what I think the parallel says as well in, in, uh, Luke. But I think that's, that's another issue of interpretation. I, I understand it to mean the law of God being the accuser. And, I mean, that's another topic altogether. But So who do you think the accuser here is here? Do you think that the accuser is, uh, a, a, a saved person? Um, I believe it's, wait a second, is it, who's asking questions? Okay, well, I'll <laughs> yeah, just, I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you, <laughs> I, think, I think the accuser is clearly not a saved person. I think that they're wicked, and I don't think that any wicked person is going to hand me over to the law of God. I think I'm going to hand them over, if anything. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. Chris, I want to know how you, um, I understand that there are parallels in the synoptics when Christ is speaking to the Sadducees about, quote-unquote, the angels, and I... 
excuse me, I understand that in, it has specific reference to the good angels. Okay? But I want to know exegetically upon what basis do you exclude the fallen angels from that, since Peter calls them the angels who sinned, and they're angels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words, if if Christ is speaking about the ontological status of these creatures, period. That's just it. I don't think they are. I don't think he is. Then in what sense is he referring to them? Well, he says that they'll be made, he says that the righteous will be made equal to the angels, and like I said, I, 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 I would be interested to hear if you think we'll be made equal to Satan. Um, but I, I think that, uh, what he's talking about is that the, the holy angels will live forever. I mean, they, they may be, um, they may be immortal now, in a way that we are not and won't be until the resurrection. But I think that God who created the angels has the ability to snuff them out of existence too, if, if that's what he wants to do or kill them is, as I think more properly would, would be put. And, you know, I, I just challenge a listener to go back and listen to our exchange in Revelation where it seemed to me that we established that several things thrown into the lake of fire, uh, and described as being tormented are actually no more. And so I, my exegetical answer to your question is the whole of Scripture, which seems to suggest that Satan and the demons, like the wicked and death and Hades and the beast and the false prophet and mystery Babylon, will all be destroyed. Okay, so they're they're cast into the second death. Uh, they're not cast into a second death. They're cast into a symbolic lake of fire, which the angel tells John is the second death. He, he, the, the angel is interpreting the symbol of the lake of fire for John by telling him that it's symbolic of the second death. Okay, so. It's literally the second death? Yeah, I think that it's a second death. It's a death uh, similar to the first, and that the body dies too, but I think that the soul will die as well. If angels are spirits without bodies, then uh, when did they experience the first death in order for this to be literally the second death for them? Oh, I don't think that the second death applies to angels. I think that the second death uh, is specifically in reference to the people pass in, uh, the humans passed into it. After all, the only places where uh, John calls it the second death is in reference to humans pa- uh, thrown into it, at least as far as my memory serves. So the... Is that time? Uh, I know. Yeah, no, time's up. Okay. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, that concludes our cross-examination period. And uh, the next session of the debate, we will have the audience question and answers. And what was interesting uh, about this was when we got, when, when I got the emails uh, sent to me, uh, all the questions were from the annihilationist uh, perspective. So <laughs> I do, I definitely have, <laughs> which I was really surprised of. So I definitely have yeah. several uh, from the annihilationist uh, to check challenge Hiramon, but uh, I had to come up with uh, four and also do some revisions on those throughout this debate uh, and asking Chris, but I do hope that uh, the audience uh, sees the questions to Chris as a representation of the audience uh, and not necessarily um, n- how I would argue uh, these points uh, per se, so hopefully uh, that makes uh, some sense to everyone, but uh, how this is going to be conducted is that I'm going to ask uh, one participant the question, uh, and they will have two and a half minutes uh, to respond to that question, and then the other participant will have one minute to offer uh, a rebuttal to that. And we will do, I guess, uh, four questions for each participant. And uh, if you guys are ready, I will um, go ahead and start out and asking Chris. I'm ready. Okay, Chris, uh, the first question I have is how would you define uh, or qualify 
the type of torment uh, that will be uh, experienced uh, by the damned, uh, and if there is any type of duration, and how long could that possibly go for? If you could uh, elaborate on those details, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so I would say that the... Uh, I mean, look, we, this normally comes up in a conversation about degrees of punishment, and uh, degrees of punishment is not at all an uncontroversial topic. Uh, there, there, there's a few statements in Scripture which speak to that, and there's no clarity as far as what is in view there, um, and it's a little bit of an in-house debate amongst conditionalists. But what I would say is I have no problem believing that there will be some uh, some brief uh, or maybe not so brief, I don't know, suffering as part of the destructive process. Much as that there's a much as there's a difference between the suffering involved in say the firing squad, in contrast with the electric chair, in contrast with hanging, in contrast with lethal injection. Now the interesting thing to note is that in each of those different cases, the punishment isn't the suffering involved. But there is varying degrees of suffering involved in what the punishment is. And in each of those four examples that I just gave, the punishment is death, which, by the way, even traditionalists like St. Augustine and um, uh, and others have recognized a, a sentence of death is, uh, even no, no matter how brief the killing process is, it's not the killing process that is the measure of punishment, it's the death itself. Uh, so anyway, I guess the point that I'm making is that I would say that there is some just difference in degree of suffering as part of the destructive process, but that is not the punishment. The punishment is the sin. I mean, sorry, the punishment is the death, uh, which is inflicted by potentially varying means, various means, some of which are more uh, torturous than others. I guess that's how I would answer that question. Okay, Hiram, your answer. Yeah, well, I'll just go back to um, the prison sentence example that's given, which doesn't require a literalistic or like a hyper-literal interpretation of the text. It's it's just a basic, just flat understanding of what's going on. There's a debt that's infinite. There's a prison state that's infinite. And there's no, there's no mention made there of that prison state coming to an end with a person dying in a cell. I mean, that's just that's completely foreign to the text, and it's read into the text. So, cumulatively speaking, we take that and we take the other images that are throughout Scripture, and the image that's there is torment. It's in, excuse me, when the demons speak about their own fate, and they refer to the time. I believe that they're referring to the day of judgment. I refer to, I, I believe that they're referring to when their time has come, basically when Christ has returned to judge the, the living and the dead. And their end is torment. That's so. time. Okay, Hiram. Yep. Uh, the reformers introduced into the study of the Bible the historical grammatical interpretation, which simply means that we are to accept the literal or plain sense of a passage wherever it is not absurd. In light of this basic hermene- hermeneutical precept, why do you insist that death destroy perishing or consumed or withering away and so on and so forth is shorthand for a life of suffering and agony. Are you not being inconsistent in your interpretation of scripture by not permitting a plain reading of text in these examples? I think objections like that are laughable. Um, and, And no offense to the questioner, but the reason why is because that's the same rhetoric that comes from People who are in, let's say, the Roman Catholic religion, the same, show me in scripture where it says sola scriptura, 
it's not there. However, cumulative case, systematic case of what's, excuse me, of what's, of what's being taught in scripture shows us that sola scriptura is a sound doctrine. It is a true doctrine. So this isn't a matter of overturning the historical grammatical principle of hermeneutics of, of interpreting scripture. It's a matter of taking all of scripture and making a comparison of literal versus figurative, for instance, or Old Testament revelation, in con- which is not as clear, in contrast to New Testament revelation, which is clear, and taking all of it and drawing out the doctrine that's there. I mean, if that's if if what the person is asking, excuse me, if we interpret scripture in that woodenly literalistic fashion, then we could argue the same way Jehovah's Witnesses do when they say, "Well, Jesus says the Father is greater than I," or when. Excuse me, when they say, when they point to First Timothy and they say, see, Christ is, you know, there's one God and one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. Well, is, are we doing something wrong when we say that God is triune? No, we're taking, we're taking the clear revelation of God from the totality of scripture and we're deducing what's there in the text. And so I believe it's the same, the same thing with the words like destruction and death. Uh, and I believe that Chris's position commits the fallacy of <clears throat> excuse me, illegitimately, illegitimate totality transfer, you have to read the same meaning of death into every single passage, whereas I think death and life throughout Scripture have, <clears throat> excuse me, like I said, they're polysemous. They're, they, have, they have multiple connotative meanings. They have a definite denotative meaning. And throughout Scripture, you have to look carefully at the cases, at how each author is using those terms. You can't just read annihilation into every single passage. And I know Chris wasn't doing that tonight. And you can't read my my definition of death into everything. You have to make those distinctions. And so, I'm not I'm not going against the historical grammatical principle of interpretation. I think when conditionalists make their case, they are flattening out the nuances of meanings throughout scriptures. They're flattening out old That's testament. Time. Okay. Uh, Chris, you have one minute to respond. Okay, I'm going to try to fit the three things I want to say into this really quickly. First of all, I'm not at all committing the illegitimate totality transfer uh, fallacy. Uh, my case was not at all dependent upon the meaning of death or destroy or anything else. My uh, case was dependent upon descriptions of furnace bur- furnaces burning up chaff, uh, slaughtered, uh, rotting, smoldering corpses. Uh, th- there simply is no, I, I simply am not com- committing that fallacy. The second thing that I want to um, point out is that uh, Hiram's not doing, I don't think, what he claims that he's doing. He, he isn't making a cumulative case. Um, I think that if listeners goes back and listens to our cross-examination, he'll see that what happened was every time I would press him on a passage, um, he would say, well, I interpret it, my, my case is cumulative, so let's look at this other passage. And when I would press him on that one, he would say, well, my case is cumulative, let's go look at this other passage. But he never actually gave me any passage which gives us good reason to interpret any of the passages which speak of death or destroy uh, as anything other than death or destroy. Um, and the last thing I'll just point out is that, take the word destroy, for example, numerous, numerous times it does refer to the kind of death I've described. So that's how I would answer that question. Okay, thank you. Uh, Chris, um, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember hearing, uh, this aspect discussed, uh, but maybe even if it was discussed, perhaps you can just elaborate on it some more. But could you please, uh, address the sections of scripture, uh, where Jesus specifically talked about, uh, the weeping and gnashing of teeth? And I'm referencing texts like Matthew, uh, 8, 12, 13, 42, 22, 13, 25, 30, and there's some other, um, parallels in the synoptics, but could you please address uh, these passages contextually and also 
uh, historically, um, you know, in the Old Covenant context and how that would uh, affect uh, the meaning that Jesus is trying to imply, uh, as well as uh, what weeping and gnashing of teeth could mean uh, in the context of uh, your viewpoint. Sure, I'd be happy to answer that, and I'm glad you did bring it up, because traditionalists oftentimes simply make the assumption that they can't justify that weeping and gnashing of teeth refers to the pain of suffering uh, for eternity and torment. They literally can't justify it. Um, weeping is uh, most typically has to do with mourning, um, not the suffering of pain. And gnashing of teeth has to do with anger. Uh, Acts 7.54, the Sanhedrin gnashed their teeth in anger at Stephen while they're stoning him to death. Uh, Psalm 112 in the Septuagint says that the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. And in Job 16, Job 69, uh, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. So th- there's simply no argument to be made for traditionalism from this from this language. Um, on the other hand, there is the, uh, and I wish I could find it in my notes at the moment, but unfortunately um, I can't at, at the moment anyway, uh, but there's the parable of the uh, wedding feast in which the guest who is inappropriately dressed for the wedding feast uh, in the parable is bound hand and foot and thrown out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, now, it's interesting, in this parable, which is an earthly scene, what happens to somebody in first century Jerusalem at night when they are at a feast, a wedding feast, and they're bound hand and foot and they're thrown out into the cold darkness of night? Well, <laughs> they're either going to die of uh, exposure to the elements or of thirst, or they're going to be killed by beasts or uh, or uh, robbers. So, but that's a place where weeping and gnashing is mentioned. Um, so, actually, I think that this uh, language, which also, by the way, speaks of uh, is applicable to the furnace of fire, um, this, uh, explanations that Jesus gives, uh, where it, it actually seems to quite strongly support what it is that I've argued. Um, but there is one thing that more thing that I think is important to recognize, which is that traditionalists will sometimes argue that it, that the text says in that place, uh, namely the furnace or the outer darkness, uh, there will be this weeping, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, again, that doesn't cause a problem for me because I have no problem believing that the wicked are weeping and gnashing as part of the destructive process. Um, but, but the interesting thing is that if you look at the word uh, ekei there in the Greek, that, that does in fact mean something akin to in that place. Um, in most of the cases, it's not at all clear if that's referring to the place where they're judged from which they're thrown out or if it refers to the place into which they're thrown. Um, but there is one place in Luke 13.28 where I think it clearly refers to the a place where the wicked see the patriarchs reclining and themselves being cast out, um, which suggests that the, the weeping and gnashing takes place where the judgment occurs, not the place where the wicked are cast into. So none of this language at all supports Hiram's position at all. Hiram, you have a one minute to respond. Yeah, I, excuse me. This is something I, I found interesting when I listened to Chris um, interview. Well, excuse me, Edward Fudge, and as I read these guys. Um, they read into the text something that's not there. Is it the case that when someone in the first century, is it the case that someone would be beaten to death or whatever whatever the case may be? Sure, I guess. But the text doesn't say that. And we don't have any grounds for going farther than what it actually says. Jesus tells us that they'll be bound and they'll be cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I agree with Chris. The gnashing of teeth is anger. And I agree with Chris that the weeping is is sorrow. Uh, But I don't see any end to it in that passage. There's no indication of it whatsoever. There's darkness, and there are two spiritual things that are mentioned there, which are anger and sorrow. And they have, there's no mention they're made of the body. There's no no mention they're made of destruction at all. So I think it's fallacious to read that into the text when the text has nothing of the sort. Time. 
Okay, Hiram, uh, in Levitical sacrifices, the victim represented the sinner. Yet, those who offered the sacrifice, they were not required to inflict upon it a series of tortures. Why are you convinced that perpetual agony is required when death is pure and simple, and that was all that the law sacrifice demanded? And in the right, it was not the pain and suffering, but it was actually the suppression of life that was accentuated. I think, as I've mentioned a few times already, I think that's... I hate to say the same thing over and over again, but it's flattening out typology. It's flattening out the type and the anti-type. Okay? Um, if, the argu- if the argument holds any weight, then we, can, we should be able to apply it to the death of Christ as well. And yet, Scripture tells us that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. That was prior to him saying, it, was, it is finished. So I would challenge that question on the basis of the fact that Scripture tells us that Christ suffered for us once in the body for our sins. It was in the body that he suffered for our sins. His suffering was a form of payment for our sins. And when he said, it is finished, is when he died. The the punishment had been meted out to him on the basis, I mean, excuse me, for his elect people. And so I think the question just misses the point completely. The, if, if the little, if, excuse me, if the second, if the punishment for the reprobate has to be, it has to match up exactly with the, the, um, with the Levitical sacrifices, then one can make the same case about Christ's death on the cross, that his suffering prior to it was unnecessary. Yet scripture tells us that it was completely necessary. And scripture tells us that he was paying for our sins. And that was, excuse me, that was why I was making a big deal at the beginning of my opening statement of the two aspects of the law. There is the, there are the positive demands of the law, <clears throat> that say do this and live and there are the punitive demands of the law that say everyone who does not do these things must suffer x y and z and the punishment does say death but again i mean and this ties into what i was saying before with chris it's assuming that death means annihilation it's assuming that death means extinction and if not then it's assuming a circular definition of what death is well what is death It's the absence of life well what's life the absence of death that doesn't tell us anything rather what's in view there death even in the old testament and the types comes out more clearly in the new testament where death is shown to be ruination being cast off from the presence of god being cast out into the outer darkness where there's sorrow forever and there's anger forever at god and there is no rest for the wicked day or night and so that that's something that i think that the question misses it's flattening out typological revelation type and anti-type excuse me and it, it, like I said, it makes the scriptures. I didn't say this now, but I said it earlier. That's time. It makes okay. Uh, Chris, you have a one minute to respond. Okay, I'm going to say three things after I make the point that I don't. I wouldn't use this argument. I, I, I just don't think it serves my case at all. The three things I want to say is number one, Hiram has complete has, has repeatedly said that conditionalists are flattening out typology, and yet he's not given us any reason whatsoever to think that we're actually flattening out typology. Uh, I asked him for examples of where New Testament authors are expanding upon the Old Testament imagery, and he couldn't give me any. Uh, the second thing that I want to point out is that he just, in answering that question, it was interesting. He just said that the punishment for sin uh, was paid by Christ uh, on the cross. Well, but 
and then he said it is finished uh, before he died. Well, wait a minute. I thought that in his opening he said that my position was the position that made Christ's death unnecessary. Um, I think that Hiram just uh, proved <laughs> James White's thing that he always says, which is that the uh, inconsistency is um, evidence of a uh, bad argument. And the third thing that I'll point out is just that he, he said that the outer darkness is where there will be sorrow and anger forever. He just read the word forever into the text. It's not there. Chris, uh, Revelation uh, chapter 14, which was uh, certainly discussed uh, in this debate, uh, it speaks of those who have, and this is the specific uh, phrase in question, it speaks of those who have no rest day or night, and that's in the midst uh, of their torment. Now, even if this text is meant to be some type of uh, metaphor, um, how does that phrase, even then, uh, the no rest day and night, stand as a metaphor or some type of allegory uh, for ones who are annihilated and obviously uh, no longer conscious in their torment? That's a good question, but I think that it misses the point that I made. My point was not that the imagery depicts annihilation. What I said is that the imagery depicts eternal torment but that the imagery represents the final destruction. Now, to answer your question, what I would say is that uh, I, I made pretty clear, uh, both with looking at the beast, uh, as well as looking at um, the uh, death in Hades, which are thrown in, which Hiram admitted, uh, along with the torment of the uh, harlot, all indicate the destruction of that which the symbols represent. Uh, so torment, <laughs> it seems to me, would quite clearly involve restlessness. And so the point that I'm getting at is that we've already established that uh, that symbolic torment forever um, is symbolic of death forever, destruction forever, uh, uh, the kind of destruction that I've argued for. Well, if symbolic torment means uh, is symbolic of that, communicates that, well, then, of course, restlessness day and night is uh, likewise going to um, be a part of that. It's, it's going to be a part of the symbology. So, again, I just want to re reiterate, I'm not saying that in the picture John has shown that people are annihilated. I'm saying that the imagery of being tormented and restless for day, a day and night forever and ever is imagery intended to communicate destruction forever. And I would, again, appeal to the uh, Isaiah 34 passage where uh, the smoke of Edom's destruction is clearly not rising forever and ever, and the, uh, um, the fire is not ongoing to this day. And yet he said that it will not be quenched day or night. John is just appealing to that. He's appealing to the imagery of Daniel 7 where the beast is thrown into the, the, the uh, lake of fire or the river of fire in that case and annihilated, the passage says, at least in the NASB. Um, I find that funny. Um, so uh, so there's just no there's no problem here. You would have to, you, What you have to do is actually violate what I think is a historical grammatical approach and say that we ought to take this imagery literally when there's literally no justification for doing so. Now, we can make the claim that it's a cumulative case. We shouldn't be interpreting Revelation in and of itself. Well, that's fine. But then when I press you on a passage, don't just jump to a different passage and then jump to a different passage and then jump to a different passage. You've got to give me at least one through which uh, we ought to interpret these other ones in a certain way. And um, this is certainly not one of them, nor have any of the other ones that uh, I think Hiram has offered. So that's how I would answer that question. Hiram, you have one minute to respond. Uh, there's a lot to respond to, I guess. But just to clarify something, it's mostly my nerves <laughs> that have kept me from pointing to, the, to specific passages right now, Chris. Um, but like I said, these things are taken cumulatively. Like this is a, this is a systematic doctrine that is systematically deduced from the propositions of Scripture. And <clears throat> excuse me. 
and I think I've, I've shown this to some degree, and um, but it, it shows itself up here again. Um, there's an inconsistency in how Scripture is being read when it comes to the conditionalist position. Uh, when do you interpret a passage literally? When do you interpret it figuratively? When do you interpret a passage allegorically? When does a type in the Old Testament just point to a, a quantitative, let's say, an expansive in terms of... Um, you know the quantity of destruction. When it is, when does it apply quantitatively? When does it apply qualitatively? Next I mean, time. Hiram is the t- teaching of hell an essential, or hell as you understand it? I should have phrased that correctly. Is the teaching of hell as you understand it um, an essential Christian doctrine? And if it is or is not, uh, what would be? What's the implications uh, of not believing? Uh, what you affirm. Well, I believe that it is an essential doctrine. And I believe the reason why, and I I laid those out, I think, pretty clearly in in my opening statement, it's that we're dealing with the righteousness, the justice of God, the righteousness of God. We're dealing with salvation itself and the work of Christ. And as I've shown, if Christ's suffering is necessary for the sake of salvation, for the sake of saving individuals from the wrath of God, then, excuse me, what it, what a denial of that amounts to is, is, it's basically, as I said earlier, there are consequences that come from that, which are, Christ isn't the only way of salvation. Excuse me. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Christ necessary, and Christ's death is arbitrary as well. And so these doctrines are essential. Now, with respect to an individual who professes Christ, who may have trouble about these doctrines, who may be facing uncertainty, who may not, for whatever reason, believe them, that's to me that's that's uh, let's say like John Wycliffe, for instance, who who denied hell, or Martin Luther, who was conditionalist as well. I think that issue doesn't have bearing upon their their condition before Christ, if that's what the question is trying to get at. I'm, I don't, I'm not too sure, but I don't think it, it says anything about the eternal state of their soul. I just believe that um, it's essential with respect to drawing out the logical implications of it. So it doesn't have immediate heretical effects, if I could say that, but I think when you follow them to the logical conclusion, when you follow the denial of the doctrine of hell, as I understand it, to its logical conclusion, then it has some pretty nasty um, consequences, heretical consequences. Chris, so you have one minute to respond. Okay, I've only got a minute, so I can't speak for long. But what I will say is I actually think that now twice, Hiram has actually proven that his argument for the essentiality of his view of hell is actually illogical. Um, in his opening argument, he said that conditionalists make Christ's death unnecessary, but he appealed to the retributive suffering that Christ paid. Well, wait a minute. If, if Christ's suffering was what was required, then why was his death necessary? Um, Hiram hasn't established that, and, and actually I think this proves that his position is the one that's inconsistent. Look, I have already agreed with Hiram that uh, only Christ can pay the infinite penalty required for infinite sin. What he has failed to establish in every imaginable way is that the penalty is suffering. Um, all he's established is that there's some suffering involved, but I think Christ's death was necessary. I- I'm assuming Hiram does. But he's violated that in his own logic, or, or I should say illogic. So because I think Christ's death is necessary, I, I, I think it's death that is a punishment for sin, and that death will be forever. Thanks.
Chris, I'd like to bring up Matthew 18, which uh, was also touched upon in this debate, and uh, would just like you to elaborate more on your uh, position on this. Uh, and if you could specifically speak on and elaborate some more on the aspect where you mentioned that this is something, and if I'm representing your argument correctly, uh, that's happening in this life. Uh, and so if you could contrast that, uh, with uh, Matthew 18, verse 25, where it says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And so uh, do you see any possibility of uh, this referring to, uh, though it is a parable, uh, to some type of eschatological judgment that uh, could take place? I said in cross-examination, um, even if th- this actually wasn't the passage that I suggested was in this life, it was the other passages in which uh, it's the earthly accuser who is the one that takes him to court, and that's why I read those passages as referring to something now. But I admitted in cross-examination that even if I was wrong about that, um, th- th- this passage is a parable here in Matthew 18, um, and, and neither of us can take it literally, because if we're if in the analogy here, the person who goes to prison... Um, uh, is unable to pay off his debt. He's not going to live forever. We don't live forever in this life. We live forever in the resurrection. So, uh, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is that this is a parable. Um, I don't deny that it has relevance to uh, future judgment. Like I said, there's some clear takeaways from this parable that I think Hiram and I can both agree on. We all owe a debt. That that debt is not something we can pay on our own. If we're not forgiving and thus we're not regenerated, then we will not be able to escape the penalty of that debt. But like I said, such as is the case with every parable that Jesus used, and I think Hiram, as, as my Reformed brother, will acknowledge that there are parables that Arminians take way wrongly because they try to read every single minute detail of the parable to have some uh, some parallel in, in, in what it is that the parable is intended to communicate. Uh, I think that's I think it's wrong to do that, and I think it's wrong to do that here. If we interpret this parable in light of the cumulative testimony of Scripture, uh, which is something I think that I've done and that I don't think Hiram has done. That's just my personal opinion. Then what we then what we do is we see we've got a, par- a parable here which can't be taken literally anyway, and we have numerous passages, both literal and figurative, which indicate that the uh, wicked will come to an end. In fact, that is language that in my opening I quoted a couple of times from Scripture itself. Um, so... I, I do the same thing that I think Hiram's trying to doing. I just happen to think that I'm being successful at it, which is interpreting this parable in light of the whole of Scripture. And um, I don't think that should be taken literally. And going back to those other two places in Matthew, uh, I don't remember the, the passages off the top of my head, but those don't appear to be parables. Those appear to be referring to what actually happens in this life. But if I'm wrong about that, then it's a parable. There are parables just like this one. And I don't think that we should read every single detail of the parable. Uh, um, I don't think we should apply every single detail uh, to that which is intended to be communicated. Hiram, you have one minute to respond. Okay, yeah, I completely agree with... Hello, can you hear me? Sorry. You're on. Okay, I just... My computer blanked out for a second. Um, I agree with Chris. Like, We shouldn't take every single piece of the parable literally, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> what I'm taking literally is the gist of what Christ is saying, and he's saying, look, whoever's not forgiving his brother in his heart... It's evidence that he's he's not redeemed, and he will stay in the prison forever. And I think that's the gist of it, pretty much. The punishment that's due to him is eternal, and I understand Chris believes that that's the, you know, um, excuse me, his conditionless position. But I think it's pretty clear, and I know I really don't see a way around it. Again, you have to read into the text death, and you have to interpret one aspect of the parable literally 
and then say the rest of it can't be interpreted literally. You know, that's that's part of what Chris just said. Oh, it's a parable, but it's referring to things in this life in the sense that you know, when someone's in prison, they die literally. Well, which is it? Time. All right, this is uh, the last question, and uh, it goes to Hiram. And this is uh, a question that I think I just don't want him to get uh, misunderstood, but this is more of a question about uh, consistency and not necessarily um, just whether, you know, you can interpret this text in your viewpoint, so just that, so that's clear and not misunderstood. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, uh, God tells Adam and Eve that their punishment of eating of the tree of knowledge and good and evil would be death. One could also see uh, Romans 6, 23, where the wages of sin is death as some type of parallel. In what way is the traditional interpretation of these texts and others like it more consistent than that of the, the annihilationists? In a variety of ways that I can't even begin to touch on. Um, part of the, the problem with this debate is that it it's it's a... It's a small period of time for a large subject that we can talk about. The notion of death, as scriptures teach it, is much richer than just the extinction of an individual or the cessation of bodily activity or unconsciousness. Like I've said, spiritual death happened to, <clears throat> excuse me, on the day that Adam made of the fruit, he died. And whether we say dying you shall die or you shall surely die or you shall die die, he died on the very day. Or, and if he began to die, we still have to reconcile Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. We have to reconcile the fact that Christ says, he says to a man, excuse me, he says, follow me. And the man says, let me bury my father first. And Christ says, let the dead bury their own dead. He's referring to those who aren't following him as dead. Present tense. Um, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father says, this was my son, or this is my son, who was dead and is now alive. And the state of death that he was in was active rebellion against the father. So death as a whole, taken across scripture, from the very beginning, is it's being in a, let's see, try to find the right word, and being in opposition to God, being in a state of spiritual rebellion, being in a state of, of receiving the curses of God and not the blessings of God. And the curses include vexation, ruination, um, and torment, as I've shown with the demons. And so, if we take... I, I've tried to show this, too, with this, the idea of the second death. The demons never died at first time. So if we're going to take second death, literally, the word death, in, in the sense that they understand it, conditionless, then I think we have to take second death literally as well, unless, unless we just want to pick and choose as to which words are literal and which words are figurative, which words hold meaning for men and which words have meaning for angels. You know, Regarding their end, Christ says that, he says to the wicked, depart from me, you cursed, into the, the fire, prepare, prepare for the devil and his angels. They will be in the same place. It's referred to as torment. And, <coughs> excuse me. And so, the second death, to me, fits more in line with my understanding of Scripture because it, from Genesis chapter one, chapter two, sorry, and That's three. That's time. Okay, Chris, uh, you have one minute to respond. 
Okay. I think that the real problem here is that Hiram is assuming and not justifying that um, that his understanding of what it means when people are spoken of in the present tense as being dead means that they are, in fact, dead, in a sense. Um, he's assumed that. We even talked about that in cross-examination. I pointed out that he assumes that that is to be taken literally. I assume that it is to be taken as though they are as good as dead, which I think is fully compatible with the parable of uh, the prodigal son. Um, the problem is he's not able to justify his assumption. We've looked at numerous passages, none of which support his position. Um, now, he said that with, when it comes to the second death, uh, the angels and demons um, didn't die a first time. Uh, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see Hiram show me anywhere where it talks about the angels experiencing a second death. Uh, Revelation 20, verse uh, 6 says that the second death is, has to do with those who don't take part in the first resurrection, humans. And then it says later at the end that it has to do with when Hades and death are emptied. Um, and it's humans who are in death in Hades. So Hiram's argument just doesn't hold. Thank you, and uh, that concludes our question and answer period. And uh, Chris, whenever you're ready, you can begin your 10-minute closing statement. Thank you. Uh, this is going to be really difficult because um, I wasn't sure where we were going to go in this debate, and, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to know how to close. But what I want to start by saying is just that I, I thank Hiram for his time today, as well as you, Mike. Um, you know, Hiram and I have both been really nervous. This is our, both of our first debate. Um, and, uh, obviously I think both of us are going to make some errors. We're going to make, we're going to have some flaws in our argumentation. We're not going to remember certain passages and all of that's to be understood. But I would challenge the listener to listen back to this and, and, uh, look at the places where I challenged Hiram to show me anywhere where, uh, New Testament authors or, or characters or, or, or the Lord expand upon Old Testament imagery and he couldn't give me any. Um, I asked him to provide any evidence that what I'm doing is in fact flat typology and he couldn't give me any um, I asked him to show me what the most powerful verse is in support of his position and he said Matthew 25 46 but then when I challenged him on it he said I agree with you Chris but I interpret this in, if, based on other passages and when we looked at those he said well this is a cumulative case and I look at other passages but we kept looking at those passages and this is what uh, you know the Jehovah's Witness will do I'm not likening harm to a Jehovah's Witness but when you, when you uh, challenge him on one verse they'll say well no that kept me that because of this other verse but then you challenge him on that verse and they say well no it kept me that because of this other verse this is not how we do exegesis. We don't simply um, ignore uh, the meaning of one verse, um, or we don't simply dismiss an alleged interpretation of one verse because what, what another verse seems to say, and then when challenged on that one, dismiss it because what another verse uh, seems to say. We've got to interpret all these together. And I don't think that Hiram has done that successfully. Now, I don't think that's a, uh, Hiram's fault. I think it's the position's fault. Um, you know, the, the, the church has, uh, for, you know, nearly 2000 years been, um, this has been the majority report. Um, now I, I wish we could have gotten into a little bit of church history because that wasn't the case in the early centuries, uh, but I can't bring that up because it is my closing argument. Uh, but, but the point that I'm making is that, uh, yes, it has been the traditional view. And yet what I found in these past six months or so that I've been studying this is that it simply doesn't hold up. We looked at numerous passages in my opening and my rebuttal, which um, weren't sufficiently responded to. Basically, basically, what I think that Hiram has done is said that every passage that I pointed to um, can't be taken in the way that I've understood them to be because of other passages. But then when I look at those passages and challenge him on those, he points to other passages and so forth. That's just not good exegesis. Um, you know, the one thing I do want to make clear in case a listener did, uh, missed it is that uh, I, I don't think that Hiram has made at all a logical case for the essentiality of, of his view of hell. His argument simply doesn't apply to my position because my argu- because his, his argument assumes that death is, or that suffering is the penalty for sin rather than death. If I'm right, 
and I think that I am, then scripture says that death is the punishment uh, for sin, not suffering. And if the death is eternal, as annihilationists contend, then it doesn't cheapen the atonement. It doesn't make uh, Christ's death unnecessary. In fact, as I explained, I think Hiram's view did that because he said that uh, if uh, that, that the retributive suffering of Christ was the payment, and, and thus my denying of that makes Christ's death unnecessary. Well, if the retributive suffering was the payment, then why did he have to die? I think it was his view that was illogical and, and introduced this problem. Um, so the point that I'm getting at is just that for those of you listening who who have who for for whom this was the biggest issue, the issue of uh, Christ's being necessarily uh, being being the one who who the only one who can atone for sin. I agree, because the sinners who were not redeemed, th- those who were not the elect, are going to die and they're going to be dead forever. Uh, they're never going to uh, they're never going to l- rise again, and so their death being an infinite punishment is in fact uh, uh, the the punishment required for sin. Um, now, of course, Christ didn't die forever, but he's also the God Man. So um, so I don't see a problem there. And in fact, that's the very argument that traditionalists will use. Um, I, w- I would encourage anybody to go back and listen to this ba- debate several times. I would encourage them to look at uh, the interview that I did of Larry Dixon, which I think went very poorly. I would encourage anybody to listen to, and when I say went very poorly, I mean for Larry Dixon, a proponent of the traditional view. Um, I think that you'll find the same thing in the debate between Ronnie and Turret and Fan, in which I think that Turret and Fan was uh, clearly the, the um, uh, I don't want to say loser, but he, he, he lost the debate. But again, I don't think that this is the fault of Larry Dixon. I don't think it's the fault of Turret and Fan, and I don't think it's the fault of Hiram Diaz. Diaz. I think it's the fault of their position, which has utterly no basis in Scripture. Um, what I want to do is, I did have a little bit of a closing prepared, and I'll go ahead and, and um, read it. Um, uh, in a recent sermon on universalism, a famous apologist, I'm not going to name him, um, whom I deeply love, admire, and respect, he opened by mentioning in passing my interview with Edward Fudge, saying it was clear and obvious that I had adopted Fudge's view, which which he called per- pervasive. But see, I, but that's a, that's simply false. I was practically brand new to it. In fact, I told this apologist afterwards that I was brand new to it, uh, that I that I was brand new to, new to it, and hadn't yet adopted Fudge's view. But it is true that I found his answers to my challenges compelling, and it caused me to seriously reconsider what he was saying. But just the fact that I had even considered his view somehow translated an outright adoption of it. And then a tradition, a traditionalist I mentioned a minute ago, Larry Dixon, likewise said, said that it was apparent that I had a horse in the race simply because I didn't find his defense of traditionalism persuasive. The point that I'm getting at is that there can be a tremendous pressure to those of you listening against even considering the view that I'm espousing in today's debate. And of course, the pressure doesn't end there. Shortly after that fudge interview, the same apologist I mentioned emailed me expressing disappointment, asking when I had, quote, jumped ship for conditionalism. And he reminded me that it would preclude me from preaching in a number of churches and denominations. So not only are you going to be pressured from even considering this view, if you do adopt it, ministry doors are going to close for you. These pressures and others have weighed heavily upon me, and perhaps they weigh heavily upon you listening. In a certain sense, I, I honestly regret that I had ever given this view an ear. As they say, ignorance is bliss, and had I never invited Edward Fudge to explain to me his view on my show, perhaps I would be blissful, uh, perhaps I would blissfully affirm today's debate proposition, not having lost respect in the eyes of the apologist whose work I appreciate perhaps above all others, not facing the prospect of ministry doors being closed to me. But aren't we Protestants? Isn't sola scriptura one of the doctrines which we hold most dearly? Don't we correctly condemn Rome's placement of tradition above the authority of Scripture? Don't we correctly denounce the watchtower's placement of the governing body above the authority of Scripture? Don't we correctly decry Mormonism's placement of the so-called prophet above the authority of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word? The truth and authority of God's word demands 
that I bend my knee to what it says about the fate of the wicked. Even if those I most deeply admire lose respect for me. Even if that bending of the knee to his word precludes me from ministering to some of God's people by teaching them to love it and plumb its depths. And that authority demands the same thing of you. And so consider what God has said in his word. Consider that he said Sodom and Gomorrah were a specimen of the punishment inflicted by his eternal fire. That wasn't even addressed in the, in the argument. Consider that this eternal fire of Gehenna, according to our Lord, is one which inflicts the kind of death and destruction described in Isaiah's scene of stinking, rotting, unconscious, lifeless corpses being burned up by fire and eaten up by maggots, without, as I'll point out yet again, expanding upon that language. Consider that by calling the fate of the wicked Gehenna, our Lord brings to our mind the place where idol worshippers once burnt up children by fire, the place he turned into a valley of slaughter, a funeral pyre for burning up the stinking, rotting, unconscious, lifeless corpses being eaten up by scavengers of the land and air. Consider that the lifelessness of these bodies in these scenes is something which our Lord indicates will be true of the souls of the wicked in the final punishment, too. Consider that the author of Hebrews calls God a fire that will consume the adversaries, Old Testament language describing the destruction inflicted by God, leaving behind piles of stinking, rotting, smoldering corpses. Consider that our Lord describes God's unquenchable fire as one which burns up chaff in a furnace of fire, hearkening to Malachi's description of the wicked being reduced to ashes beneath the feet of the righteous. Consider that in the vivid imagery shown to John in Revelation, symbols representing death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, communicating, as Hiram admitted, their utter end. Symbolism equally applicable to the fate of the wicked. I really don't think it could be any clearer, and despite the external pressures weighing upon me, I have to bend my knee to the authority of God's word, and so should you. The punishment of the damned will not actually be torment forever and ever. It will be a final, permanent, irreversible destruction, and the wicked will be forever no more. And so beyond confidently denying today's debate proposition, I appeal to my fellow Protestants listening to this debate, asking you to likewise bend your knee to scripture, despite these various pressures which you may face, and despite the prominence and popularity that my opponent's view has had in Christian circles for most, but not all, of church history. I ask you to remember one of the basic tenets of the Protestant Reformation, semper reformanda, always reforming. Let us continue the spirit of the reformers and not allow ourselves to worship the sacred cow of tradition when it goes contrary to the scripture, as I think Hiram's position clearly has done. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Hiram, you now have 10 minutes for your closing statement. Thanks. Well, unlike Chris, I, I, excuse me, I haven't seen those pressures being put on conditionalists. I haven't experienced that because that isn't my position, obviously. I've actually experienced the other end of it, where conditionalists have seemed to be vitriolic in their treatment of um, people that hold to the position that I hold to. So I don't see things from that perspective per se. Um, Tonight, Chris and I debated a very serious subject that's often misrepresented on both sides, I believe misunderstood, hated, or just plain forgotten by many within the professing church. Um, And that was the resolution for tonight. The punishment of the damned will actually be torment forever and ever. And I believe that on the plain statements of scripture that the final end of the wicked is actual torment forever and ever. However, seeing as the subject is complex, it involves questions of hermeneutics, anthropology, angelology, and soteriology, in addition to the interpretation of passages of scripture, specifically dealing with the final end of the wicked. Now, it's true that I haven't presented a a catena of verses that show this progression from Old Testament revelation of what the judgment of the wicked be into the New Testament revelation of what the judgment of the wicked will be. But I'm, in general, in the course of this debate, what I'm trying to show is that following biblical interpretation as a whole, which is what I meant by cumulative, building a cumulative case, is the fact that the Old Testament does gradually become clearer and clearer. And the point that I was trying to make, which I think was missed, is that 
and this has to be by the listeners of the debate and, and also for Chris, I think it needs to be paid attention to is that if the judgment that's mentioned in the Old Testament is equivalent to the judgment that's mentioned in the New Testament, there is no progressive revelation. And there is no gradual coming into clearer view, as I quoted Dr. Robert Morey, referring to progressive revelation, and as I believe Chris probably does hold to. And that's the prob- That's one of the biggest problems that I find with it, because it's a huge inconsistency. Uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Tonight, Chris talked about Isaiah 66, but I went back one chapter, Isaiah six- 65, where Isaiah is talking about infants in heaven. He's talking about old men dying in heaven. He's talking about sinners in heaven. In the New Jerusalem, this is figurative language. We go to the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel speaks about the, the temple to come. He speaks about people fishing in the rivers that are outside of the the, um, the temple. Is this literal? No, we don't interpret that literally. So what exegetical warrant is there for the conditionalist to say, this passage of judgment in the Old Testament can be transferred wholesale into the New Testament with a, a, a quantifying um, change to it, meaning the extent of the destruction is longer and bigger, whereas the passages in the Old Testament dealing with salvation are qualitatively changed in their antitype in the New Testament. I don't see the justification for it. And I think that's largely what the case depends upon. It's a, it's a, as I said, it is a flattening out, and that's the reason why. And that's the case that I, <clears throat> excuse me, that I tried to make clear. <clears throat> excuse me. Now, when we consider Clark Pinnock, the, we also need to consider people like Fudge, who was mentioned a couple of times tonight. And, and something that Fudge said in, in one of his articles is that the Old Testament is, sil- is not silent concerning the wicked's fate. Okay? He says that there are 50 different verbs used to describe this fate and 70 different figures of speech. And yet all the figures of speech that he mentions have nothing to do with annihilation. For instance, Psalm 2.9 says that the wicked will become like a vessel broken to pieces. But when you contrast that with the state of the righteous, he says that in the psalm, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Psalm chapter 1, David says that the righteous are like a tree that's flourishing. So again, there's this interpretive problem. It's a hermeneutical problem. Why is it that when it comes to the conditionalist position, the wicked and their judgment, their fate, is always interpreted literalistically, but the fate of the righteous is always interpreted figuratively? And the fate of the wicked is interpreted quantitatively, but yet the fate of the righteous is interpreted qualitatively. It's, it's inconsistent. And the only way that Chris's position holds true is if that inconsistency is there in the text. As I pointed out, the false teachers of Jude's day had already perished, past tense. Um, I've also pointed out that they were twice dead. I also pointed out the fact that Christ says body and soul will be destroyed. They will be killed in hell. Well, we're already spiritually dead. And am I assuming that this is literal death? I, yeah, I am. But my understanding of death has a broader range of meaning, as I've shown from Scripture. One can be dead and yet be alive at the same time. And there's no contradiction because the death that one is experiencing is accursedness and ruination, just as Adam's death was. They were cut off from God, just as Israel would be cut off from God for her sin. And so there's no contradiction there. There is a contradiction, however, if we think that death is to be interpreted as the cessation of life, and or if we believe that it should be the cessation of consciousness or the cessation of activity, because it's none of those things in Scripture. And so, rather than importing meaning into the text, what I've been, what I've tried to do to some extent is is show that on the basis of what Christ says and the images that He gives, parabolic or not, 
the punishment of the wicked is forever and it is conscious. And there is an equation of destruction and death. And it isn't me picking which word I want to choose, uh, which word I want to stick as far as death, excuse me, as far as destruction and torment go with respect to the demons. Not at all. Rather, I'm taking both of those words and what they mean and putting them together. For me, in my understanding, death is the punishment for sin. But death encompasses much more. It, en- it encompasses Christ's suffering. It encompasses his actual bodily death. It encompasses both. And it also encompasses... <clears throat> excuse me. It encompasses the the ruination, as I said, and the casting away that's experienced by the wicked, by the wicked angels as well. And so... I would just urge the listeners to, you know, to go over the passages that are read and to look at the, the most, and to me, the simplest meaning of the passages. When Christ says that you will be handed over to the jailers until you pay every last penny, he means it. And this is another inconsistency on Chris's position as well. He says in one breath, you know, when someone's placed in jail, they'll die eventually. But we'll say, I'll say, I'll argue the other way. When someone's placed in prison, in jail, they're conscious. They're fully conscious. And they're tormented because they don't have access to the life they had before. Which I believe is actually the case that Christ is making when you consider, as we've mentioned already, um, the people who are cast outside of the wedding feast and who experience sorrow and gnashing of teeth, sorrow and anger. And so, on a clear reading of the passage, I think it's, my position makes more sense than Chris's does because it, it, it in, I'm sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> it does justice to more passages of scripture than, than Chris's does. If we interpret the passages literalistically, if we fail to do systematic interpretation of the text, then Chris's position can hold. But if we look at scripture as a whole, then it, his position holds no weight. And I think it, it's only once we start Picking and choosing where we're going to interpret a symbol as opposed to a literal meaning for a word, I think that's problematic. And I think that's the faulty hermeneutics, and that's the, that's not exegesis. And that reflects the same sort of thinking that, as I said earlier, it comes across in, even in uh, Roman Catholics, for instance, where they, to give a brief example, they go to Revelation chapter 12 and they say it's Mary. And just a few verses later, it says that the woman has more children. And they say, oh, that's figurative. Well, where does one draw that line of distinction? Scripture becomes incomprehensible, in other words, on the basis of Chris's position. And that's one of the consequences. But as I mentioned in my opening statement, the the biggest one for me is the fact that Christ's death becomes unnecessary, it becomes arbitrary, and it becomes a way of salvation as opposed to the way of salvation. I didn't contradict myself because I understand death to mean to encompass the suffering of Christ and I understand it to be the cessation of bodily existence as well. So, like I said, I would just, I would urge the listeners, I would urge Chris and anyone else who's taking note of this to, to consider the passages in context, to take your time through scripture and to allow God to speak clearly in every single book individually let the authors make their point and make the whole let the whole of scripture make their make its point there's a reason why the position has been held traditionally for 2000 years and it isn't just because of prejudice it's because systematically the result is the doctrine of hell as i understand it the traditionalist view and like i said if if we could have another debate on the issue of on one of the many issues involved in this issue um for instance hermeneutics how we interpret passages or angelology, ontology, whatever the case may be, 
then we can we could just we could show that and we could trace the development of the doctrine of hell from scripture. But like I said, just search the scriptures for in them there is life and they testify of Christ and they tell us what the final end of the wicked is. I'm doing I'm doing my part as best as I know how to defend what I believe scriptures teach and I think it's clear. So thank you. Thank you, and uh, that concludes uh, tonight's debate, and uh, thank you uh, for everyone who uh, will take the time to listen to this, and especially uh, for both uh, participants, uh, Chris and Hiram, for just uh, conducting yourselves in uh, what I felt was a very respectful manner, so uh, thank you both. You're welcome. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed the debate. I'm recording this before I actually take part in the debate. Um, so I hope that uh, you'll share your thoughts with me by, by email. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then.